We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Revelation reading from chapter 7 and from the verse 11. And we shall read into chapter 8 from verse 11 of chapter 7. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun lighten them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them, unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets." And we shall end a reading here, and may God bless, too, is the reading of his holy word. We come to further consider these visions that were given to John, not only for his own personal encouragement, but for the encouragement of the persecuted church at the time, and for the instruction of the universal church at all times to the very end of the world. And here we have in chapter 7, as we noted last Lord's Day, the great and glorious innumerable number of the redeemed around the throne, gathered from every tongue and from every kindred and people, and so on. And this must have been, as we noted, a tremendous encouragement to John when he would see how small and persecuted the church was to know that the day was coming when it would be the saints of God who would have the victory and would triumph in the end. And in the midst of all these redeemed, of course, is the throne itself and the Lamb in the midst of the throne. And we are told they are before the throne of God in contrast to those who were desperate to escape from the wrath of the Lamb, saying, Who can stand? And here are those who are standing before the Lamb before the throne, the redeemed of the Lord. We are told in verse 15, they are before the throne of chapter 7, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth in the throne shall dwell among them. There is such a blessed relationship that he is not only enthroned, but they are conscious of his presence among them as 
one of them, at one with them, and as it were, they belong to him, and he belongs to them, and they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, and so on. For the Lamb, which is in the midst of the throne, shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and so on. Now we considered the great judgments that God was sending upon men when the sixth seal was opened. So terrible that those who were at enmity with Christ and the throne of God desperately seek some refuge from that wrath. And uh, those judgments, of course, had been depicted on many occasions. Back in the Old Testament, John knew exactly what the significance of them was. But before they are permitted to fall on men and judgment, God marks out his own people. He identifies them. Just as he did when the plagues were in Egypt, when God was judging Pharaoh and judging the Egyptians who obeyed Pharaoh, he made a distinction between the Egyptians and his own uh, people. If you go back, for example, to the book of Exodus and the chapter 8, there you will see several times God mentions it, but just for the sake of time, we may look at verse 23 of Exodus 8. I will put a division between my people and thy people tomorrow shall this sign be. And you can see when you follow the outpouring of these plagues, that while the Egyptians were plagued, the God of the Hebrews preserved them and kept them. And this division was as a warning as it were to Pharaoh, who he was confronting the God who was able to make this distinction. In chapter 9 of Exodus, verse 4, the Lord shall sever between the cattle of Israel and the cattle of Egypt, and there shall nothing die of all that is the children's of Israel. You can look at chapter 11, verse Seven, but against any of the children of Israel shall not a dog move his tongue against man or beast, that ye may know how that the Lord hath put a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And God was preserving his people, making a difference, and dealing with them differently protecting them, maintaining them while the judgments of God fell upon the opposing Egyptians. Now you see again in the prophecies, Ezekiel for example, when God was going to send his judgments upon Israel, he sent a man with an inkhorn to mark the foreheads of those who mourned and lamented for the, after the glory of God. Before the judgments fell, the man with the inkhorn, he marked and thus identified the true people of God. Now when we come to the book of the Revelation, we don't find, and this is what many don't seem to appreciate, there is no new doctrine taught 
in the book of the Revelation. Many there are producing new doctrines as they supposedly teach or interpret the content of this book. This is part of one united revelation of divine truth. Uh, or as the Puritans, they would have referred to it, uh, Jonathan Edwards, the history of redemption. That's what it's all about. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the history of redemption. From the fall of man to his restoration in glory. And uh, we have to understand that when we come to this book, while it is different, it is part of a oneness, a unit, a unified revelation. There's not any new doctrine to be found in it. Therefore, if we're to understand it aright, we have to go back sometimes to the Old Testament and ask the question, is there anything in here that gives us any indication as to the meaning of what John sees? And of course we see again and again that's exactly how it is. Now here in the chapter 7, we've already noted it, but it is necessary, I think, to sometimes repeat certain things or enlarge upon them uh, and extend uh, our understanding of them. Now, in chapter 7, the angels are holding back, as we've noted, these four winds of judgment. But the reason they are holding them back is because God intends to protect and keep his people and his church. Not one redeemed will be lost. And so uh, the verse 3 reminds us, the angel said, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. Now, when we come to the end of the chapter, as we've read, these are before the throne of God, and they serve God day and night. And how did they get there? The angel said, they are those that came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But how did they escape? How did they come to be here? They were marked. We are told they were sealed. They had a seal or a mark upon their foreheads so that they could be identified. Now, God doesn't need any mark upon them to identify them. But these are symbolic activities to teach John as to the mind and the purpose and the actions of God, the invisible God. Now, if you go over to the chapter 13 and 14, you will see these again appearing in a different context or perhaps a more extended context. Revelation 13 a great deception is taking place in the earth among men. And there is this beast and the dragon united together, but what I want to note is verse 16 of chapter 13, he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand and in their forehead, and that no man might buy nor sell, save he that had the mark 
or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man, and his number is six hundred, three score and six. Now these are the ungodly, the deceived, and they have their identity. So that, in reality, there are two identities, just as it was back in Exodus, God had his own people identified as distinctly different from the Egyptians. God puts a difference between them. Here is the beast demanding, requiring that everyone receive his mark and he makes his claim upon them. They receive, they are to receive a mark in the right hand or in their foreheads. Now what does the mark mean? No man might bind or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast. The name of the beast, they belong to him. Now, chapter 14, verse 1, And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him an hundred forty and four thousand. Well, we've already seen them in chapter 7. Having his father's name written in their foreheads. So when we go back to chapter 7, and we have there the marking on the forehead, what is it? It is the Holy Spirit putting the name, the name upon the redeemed of their father, that they belong to him. So here are the Two seeds, as it were, that we trace their roots, their history, right back to Genesis. Here now they are so clearly identified. There are those, and they have the mark and the name of the beast upon them. There are those, and they have the mark and the name of their father upon them. And these are the people of God who are identified. They have a a mark and a name on their forehead. And it's the name of their father, the seal of his by which he claims them as his own. They belong to him. Now you go back to John chapter 20, and you have, after the resurrection, the Savior, uh, when he's, before he has met his disciples, he speaks to Mary at the empty tomb, And he tells her to carry a message to his disciples. Jesus, verse 17 of John 20, said unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Now, this can be the only reason that they have this mark then, because the one who's in the throne is at the right hand of his father. And these are identified as belonging to Christ, united to him by faith, redeemed by his blood, and they are now 
in the presence of God and their Savior, marked out, identified as his people. And in this chapter 7 then, when they are identified, when they are marked, when they are claimed, then the judgments may fall. And when we come to chapter 8, we read, and when he had opened the seventh seal, there's this break, as it were, between the opening of the sixth seal and the opening of the seventh seal. Because there is a new development, an expansion upon what we've already uh, noted, what John has already seen. As we said, it was like the summaries. And then when the summaries are given, you see the redeemed church now glorified around the throne of God. But then whenever you see we come to the sounding of the trumpets, our attention then is drawn to the expansion, as it were, of the visions, so that we see uh, on occasions the same events, the same happenings, but in a different light or having a different effect. So that's how we are to understand it. Now, we began our reading in chapter 7 from verse 11. And all the angels stood round about the throne. Notice, and all the angels. All the angels, the complete host of all the angels are around the throne. Notice their relationship to the throne and their association with the redeemed. All the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshipped God. Now the redeemed are nearer to the throne in this depiction than the angels there in the Circumference, as it were, though they are bowing down before the throne. So the picture is here of the glorified, triumphant, crowned Redeemer, surrounded by all the citizens and all the subjects of his kingdom. There they are, the whole redeemed church, the angels, all the angels, They're all around the throne. Now, why does it say all the angels? Because the angels have a particular place in the whole work of redemption. And the angels are sent on various missions from the throne. Now, we've looked at the... Elders around the throne, we've considered the beasts around the throne, but we haven't as yet noted the angels. And yet, the angels play a very vital and important role throughout the remainder of this book. And in the chapter 8, We read when he had opened the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour, and I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And then you find later seven angels with seven vials of wrath. So the angels are very important here. So we need to know, well, who are they? What is their business? What is their relationship to the Lamb in the midst of the throne? 
And that's why we read, as we did from the epistle to the Hebrews in the first chapter. There we're told very clearly what the business of the angels is. There's chapter 1 of Hebrews. Questions are asked about the angels, uh, the glorious Son of God and our nature is made higher than any of the angels. So they are subject to him. Verse 5, unto which of the angels said he in any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And so on. Verse 6 again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Now then, when we come to verse 13, what do we read? But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit in my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all? Are they not all? All these angels in chapter 7 around the throne in Revelation, all the angels were around the throne. Now we might think there are different orders among them, angels and archangels, specific archangels are mentioned by name, and so on. But all these angels are around the throne, surrounding the redeemed. What is the association? Are they not all? ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. They're sent forth from the throne. They don't go on their own mission. They are sent forth. To whom do they belong? Uh, Verse 5 and again in uh, verse seven and so on, they belong to the one who occupies the throne. They are sent, they are called his angels. They are sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Now what happens when we come to the book of the Revelation? You find all these dispensationalists And you find these prophetic teachers and they tell us the angels are going forth to bring judgments here, to do all kinds of things to to torment men and so on. Yes, they engage And they are responsible for many of these actions. We've already seen them holding back the winds of judgment until the elect of God are marked and identified as his. But if they take up the trumpets to blow the seven trumpets, And if they take up the vials of wrath to pour them out, what are we to understand they're doing? What is the purpose of it? Are these some kind of angels that have gone off course? That have got a hatred in their hearts for wicked men and are going to punish them? They are all ministering spirits sent forth from the throne to minister 
for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Everything they do, everything they're involved in, the blowing of the trumpets, the pouring out of the vials of the wrath of God, what is it all about? They are ministering for the heirs of salvation. They're on the side of the heirs of salvation. And when they are around the throne, these heirs of salvation, redeemed, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, they're surrounded by the angels who have been ministering to them. Now that's important that we understand that. Now it is necessary, I think, to go back a little to know where we are. You know, man will come up with all kinds of ideas. You have the classic dispensationalists today and the progressive dispensationalists. That's why many people are very confused. They really don't know what dispensationalists really believe half the time. Now, the classic dispensation, of course, he believes in seven different dispensations. When it's all worked out, it really comes to eight. The progressive dispensationists have come to the conclusion, well, we can't substantiate all this from Scripture. We can't substantiate the dispensation of innocence, and then followed by the dispensation of conscience, and then the dispensation of civil government, followed by the dispensation of promise, And then that's followed by the dispensation of grace. And then the kingdom. And the kingdom really consists the dispensation of the, uh, dispensation of the kingdom really incorporates both the rapture and the millennium. And of course Christ comes The secret rapture, there's nothing in the Bible anywhere about any secret rapture from Genesis to Revelation. When he comes, every eye shall see him, even they that pierced him. And then he comes, and the elect or the godly are caught away. And then the great tribulation takes place. And then the Jews, who are to be saved, turn in the tribulation to the Lord. And then the Lord is able to come back the second time. Now many of the progressive dispensationalists today realize we just can't substantiate this from Scripture and they've moved around many of them Although still premillennial and still believing in the rapture to the two dispensations of the old and new covenant and so on. But you see, when we come to the New Testament and when we come to the book of the Revelation, we don't come to some new revelation as it were, some uh, new a revelation that the prophets and the patriarchs and the prophets and the godly of the past had no conception whatever of. One of the, well, there are three basic tenets that the dispensationists hold to. And the first is the division in prophecy relating to Israel and the church. The great problem is, very often they come to a prophecy, is this for Israel or is this for the church? 
And they make this distinction. There's Israel and there's the church. And there's Israel that with all its promises, and there's the church with a set of different promises. Now I know we're not going into detail, I'm just summarizing. And then you see, because this is the case, Israel is given, in my opinion, a completely different place in the scriptures to what the apostles actually give it. Now, in addition to that particular view, the premillennialists, of course, they believe in the coming of Christ uh, before a millennial reign of 1,000 years in Israel. That's why Israel is so important. That's why the nation of Israel is so important. That's why the land of Israel is so important. Because Christ is going to come back. And he's going to reign from Jerusalem for a thousand years over the earth. Now that's one of their strongest tenets of uh, belief. And then, of course, that's naturally followed by a pre-tribulation rapture. And you have, in reality, throughout these different dispensations... And the, the purpose of them, by the way, is that God tests men in a particular way through the period of that particular dispensation. Innocence. Man was created in innocence. He disobeyed God. He was tested. He disobeyed God. He sinned. He fell. Now he becomes conscious that he's naked and exposed before God and he's entered the dispensation of conscience. So God now tests him in a new way. And you can follow the different dispensations according to them and there is no overlapping. Darby... J. N. Darby, uh, John Nelson Darby taught the dispensations are very accurate. They don't overlap. One begins and ends and another begins and ends and so on. The result is that God does not deal with men in the same way and their salvation is not the same based on grace. You have different methods by which God apparently saves men. And you cannot say that when the apostle said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, that didn't apply. That didn't apply in the dispensation of innocence or the dispensation of conscience or whatever. That's not how it was. It was different. Now you and I need to know these things because there is growing, particularly among Pentecostalists, these notions these ideas, and we need to know what the Bible does actually teach. When we go to the gospel according to Luke, something happened, we've already been mentioning earlier, the contrast between the old world and the new world, the beginning of the New world, as it were, or what we might call, you've heard the politicians talk 
in more recent years about the new world order. 2000, the second millennium, was going to introduce the new world order. Things are going to be different. Things have got worse. But there is such a thing as a new world order presented to us clearly in the scripture. And we've already noted it, but we might just go back a little. Luke chapter 1, the shepherds were out in the field by night. And we're told, or I should have said Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. There were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, one of those angels around the throne. And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people. Now here he's engaged, this angel, in doing what? In ministering to those who are the heirs of salvation. What has he been sent forth to do? To just make an announcement? To just address a few shepherds? This is part of the great ministry to those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. It must fit into that ministry. That's what they're all to do. So wherever we find them, we must see their activity, their announcements, their proclamations as contributing to that great work. Here's what the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. This is not to the Jews. Or to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is to all people. Every part of the globe, this is to them all. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. Now the wise men, they came seeking the king he was born. Where is he that is born the king of the Jews? And Herod and all Jerusalem was stirred up when they heard a king is born the king of the Jews because Herod was not really lawfully the king. But here we're told the angel said unto you, this is great news for all people everywhere. A Savior has been born, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. These angels are engaged in this great proclamation. Something has happened to change the world. News now to all peoples. The news in the Old Testament to Abraham was that he would become the father of many nations. And through his seed, the nations would be blessed. Here's the angel saying, the day has come. The promise is now fulfilled. 
The seed has arrived. He is the Savior through whom all nations and all peoples are to be blessed. Now what does John tell us in the first chapter of John? He came. But who did he come to? He came unto his own. But his own received him not. There comes a time when a great procession marches into the city of Jerusalem. The Savior is riding upon an ass and the people are casting palm branches in the way and throwing their coats in the ground and they're crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And they really thought the day of their liberation had come. The Romans will be scattered. Their power will be broken. And the king will be in his throne in the house of David. That's what they believed. Just after that, what does Jesus do? He goes out and he weeps over Jerusalem. Why is he weeping? Because of their ignorance. Because of their darkness. They did not know the day of their visitation. And they rejected their Messiah. They rejected the king on his cross is written, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He's rejected. Now what happens? Well, look with me uh, at the uh, what the Savior himself, he is the king, remember. He's king in Zion. He's appointed as in Psalm 2. Uh, as the king of Zion. Now, what kind of a kingdom has he come to establish? What kind of a kingdom does he preach? The gospel of the kingdom, as we looked at last week. But to get the connection between his kingdom under the new administration we need to contrast it with the nation of Israel of old. In the book of Exodus, you go with me to uh, Exodus chapter 19. There you will see what God intended this nation to be, this, this people, this nation of Israel, what their purpose was. Exodus 19, verse 4. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Now, what would many others be saying? No, no, he brought them to the promised land. He brought them to himself. Verse 5, Now therefore, because I have carried you and borne you in eagle's wings, you had no strength in yourselves, but I bore you and I brought you to myself. I brought you into a covenant bond with myself. Now therefore, because I've done this, if ye will obey my voice and indeed, uh, indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine. I could have chosen any people. Later God says, I didn't choose you because you were strong or a great people or a mighty people. I actually chose you because you were a weak people, a small people, an insignificant people. Ye shall be, verse 6, unto me a kingdom. Now what kind of a kingdom? 
ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. You better tell them what the relationship is between us. I have brought you to myself to be a kingdom of priests and a peculiar holy nation. Now, when we go over to the epistle of Peter, first Peter, we find Peter, one of the Lord's disciples, one of the apostles. What does he tell us in chapter 2 of his first epistle? He's talking about newborn babes, verse 2 of 1 Peter 2, spiritual babes. And what does he say? Verse uh, 5, these spiritual babes, ye also as lively stones or living stones, spiritually alive, living stones are built up, what? A spiritual house. Your spiritual stones belonging to a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Verse 9, these same people, living stones, born again of the Spirit of God, this spiritual house, these members of this spiritual house. What does Peter say? Verse 9. Ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Now, the language is very similar to what God told Moses he was to tell the nation of Israel. They've been brought out of Egypt. They're redeemed. He's taking them to the land flowing with milk and honey and so on. And this is what he said. Now what does Peter tell us? All after this, millenniums later, what does he say? Those who are born again, who are living stones spiritually alive. They are the real priesthood. They are the real nation. They are the real kingdom to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Not offering up lambs and goats and bullocks, but spiritual sacrifices not through a priest in the Old Testament, but through the priest of the New Testament, through Jesus Christ. And the offerings are acceptable through Jesus Christ. Ye are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. A peculiar People. Now I want to turn to a very solemn text. And I want us to note it. Whatever we happen to hear others say, however country it might be, what we're going to note is the words of the Savior himself. You know, there are most someone was just the most peculiar interpretations of things. Someone was just telling me through the week that they'd read of a converted Jesuit interpreting the white horse that we've noted as being the Pope. 
because he's clothed in white and he wears a crown and so on. Well, the it's not very difficult to refute that notion because the Pope was given a crown by men. The rider in the white horse was given a crown from the throne. And he was sent forth to do what? Conquering and to conquer. And we noted how he conquers to the end. Oh yes, the papacy has gone forth conquering. But it won't conquer. The day will come when it will be announced Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And the papacy will be brought down. It will not conquer in the end. And that interpretation is quite obviously contrary to what John saw. And so often you see we think, well so-and-so because of his background or his history or his following or whatever, he, he must be quite accurate. Jesus Christ tells us in the gospel according to Matthew, or he told the Jews, the rebellious Jews, the religious leaders of the Jewish community, In chapter 21 of of, uh, Matthew, verse 43. Therefore, say I unto you. This is not Peter. This is not John. This is not Paul. This is not Isaiah. This is not Daniel. This is no one else. But the word made flesh. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. Look at the end of the chapter, verse 45. When the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he speak of them. Did they? they were not mistaken. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. They were so mad at it that they sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude. And what has he told them that makes them so mad? The kingdom of God shall be taken from you. Won't be yours. Won't be yours anymore. It will be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. What nation? The nation that Peter tells us about. The peculiar nation. The nation, the royal priesthood, the nation, the peculiar people. The kingdom is taken from you, and it's given to them. Why is it that people don't accept that? Why is it that they have all these ideas that the Jews have this special place during the tribulation, and they are going to then be converted, many of them. The kingdom, Jesus said. What did he come to do? He came as the Savior. He came as the King. They crucified him. They said, away with him. We will not have this man to reign over us. What did the Savior say? Fair enough. The kingdom shall be taken from you. I leave you to yourselves. But my kingdom is not of this world. And my kingdom shall consist of a royal priesthood. 
And my kingdom shall consist of a peculiar people. And my kingdom shall consist of living stones, spiritually alive. My kingdom shall be a peculiar people in contrast to the people that Moses was to address in the Old Testament. Now, I know that people will try to twist this. They will try to distort it and so on. But Jesus made it clear there's a big change taking place. And the kingdom is not going to be yours. And you may go back to the land of Israel. And you may endeavor to set up a new temple. And you may endeavor to restore the priesthood. And you may endeavor to restore the throne of David and have expectations of a great millennium for a thousand years. But the kingdom shall be taken from you. Did these religious chief priests and Pharisees dismiss it? He's talking nonsense. They were furious because they knew perfectly well he's telling us the kingdom's going to be taken from you, you Pharisees and you Sadducees and you religious leaders that control things now. I am setting up a kingdom. Daniel talked about it. Isaiah talked about it. Ezekiel talked about it. Zechariah talked about it. The prophets were all talking about it. And when we come to the book of the Revelation and we observe the movements of the angels on behalf of him that sits upon the throne, They are all engaged in the gathering of the citizens of this kingdom. This is his kingdom. This is his throne. This is his government. These angels are his servants, his ministers sent forth to bring those upon whom the mark is. And what's the mark, by the way? Where is the mark? It's in the forehead. In both cases, those of the mark and the number of the beast, those of the mark and the number and the name rather of their father. When you look at what we read in the chapter seventeen, we get an idea. Verse thirteen of Revelation seventeen: These who have the mark of the beast and the name, uh, uh, the mark and the number and the name of the, and the number of his name upon their foreheads. Verse 13, these have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. They're marked in the head, the hand, the mind is the mind, the carnal mind, to devote themselves and their energy to the kingdom of the beast in opposition and the kingdom of the dragon in opposition to the glorious Christ and his church. How are the godly marked on their foreheads? And they have the name of their father united with Christ. Therefore, Paul writes, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And that's the distinction between these parties. The state of the mind. One has a mind for Christ, for his kingdom. The other has a mind to oppose Christ and his kingdom. We may go into it more fully later, but presently let us understand that the king is active and he's sending even right now his angels out to minister to them who are the heirs of grace 
The kingdom is being established. The peculiar people are being gathered. The living stones are being fitted together into the spiritual household. And if we do not understand the central position of Christ redeeming his people, that's what it's all about, the redemption of his people and the angels are involved. But time is gone. We better leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice that there is a throne above every throne. There is a king above every king. There is a savior and one who is even presently working the salvation of his people, gathering them and drawing them one by one, sending the angelic hosts out to minister to them, to secure them and to keep them, to protect them and to assist them all the way to glory. Do thou then grant us thankfulness this day if we belong to Christ's kingdom, But, oh, have mercy on us if we do not. Bring us to see our folly, the terrible plight we are in. Bless thy truth, pardon us now. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen.